takes a licking and it keeps on ticking. Welcome to Deep Shit. This is Baron Vaughn. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, I'm going to start posting this podcast on Monday night slash Tuesday morning. Uh, I'll post it Monday night for your enjoyment on Tuesday morning. The Sunday thing has become too hard for me because I am finding myself traveling most Sundays. And Monday is a pretty consistent night that I will actually be in town. And Sunday, not so much. So it is easier for me to post the podcast on Monday nights slash Tuesday morning than it has been for Sunday, Monday. Um, And that's neither hither nor thither because you guys are going to listen to these podcasts when you listen to them. Um, I just want to try to get on some sort of damn schedule. Um, But the last couple of months have been uh, really busy for me. And uh, speaking of which, Podcast Fest, PodFest was this last weekend. Excellent. Really, really fun. Um, I went down to Cabo San Lucas for the Cabo Comedy Festival, the first annual Cabo Comedy Festival, which was fucking strange, guys. Um, I actually recorded like a 16-minute long uh, confessional, if you will in my room after a shit set in Cabo. But I deleted it because I realized uh, no one cares. <laughs> I'll summarize it for you. Basically, I had a shitty set in a shitty room uh, and felt like shit. But it, it it's one of those shows where it's just kind of like it's an imperfect situation. But I still feel like I should be able to bring myself out of it. But it didn't happen. Of course, there were comedians that were able to transcend the craziness and cacophony that was happening in that room and focus the audience and get really great laughs. But after those 15 people went up, they decided to put me up last, which is a vote of confidence. It's a, we trust that you are strong enough to close this show and you're a very strong comic. Problem with that is that... Um, I'm cerebral, like, you guys listen to this podcast, I'm fucking, uh, you have to listen to me, like, really, I'm not just gonna try to, like, hit you over the head with dick jokes, I got dick jokes, but I just don't do those only, and uh, also, sometimes when I, when I do stand-up, I palm the mic in a way, uh, Sean Patton told me I hold the mic like Jay-Z, um, and I've never really paid attention to the way that Jay-Z holds his mic. Uh, because I'm just listening to those lyrics. Those genius lyrics. But um, it was a shit sound system that night. And uh, it muffled everything I said. So everyone was trying to say, oh yeah, this mic was really muffled. No one could really understand what you were saying. I'm like, sure, it was the mic. Uh, is what my response to that was. Cabo San Lucas is... An interesting place. It's 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 not like Tijuana, but it's like it's a little classier than that. Uh, I would assume I've never been to Tijuana. So, uh, but it's just it seemed like everyone was older. It seemed like the the average age of tourists was forty. That there were a lot of like people in their thirties there, uh, and people in their forties there, and then people in their thirties and forties who. <laughs> brought their kids uh that was me yawning the last three notes of the theme song of batman 
the animated series. <laughs> That's what that was. Anyway, um, I was there for uh, the comedy festival and then flew back Saturday. Had about an hour and a half before I had to go do my podcast at PodFest. Um, it was very interesting, guys. The guests were Hassan Minaj, uh, Dave Ross, and a gentleman named Dr. Pierre Grimes, who I, if you listen, I have talked about a little bit before because I was saying how excited I was to have him on the podcast. It was interesting. I feel like we, uh, I feel like our wires were crossed just a little bit, uh, mostly because uh, I have never tried to do it with multiple people. Like, I've only ever done this podcast when it's one person. Uh, just me and a person in a room talking because I like that. I like that eye contact. The eye contact helps me a lot. But four of us were sitting side by side. <sighs> Jeez, man. I don't want to. I hate outing just being so out about the fucking time that I am recording this. <sighs> My allergies are acting up too. Oh, when? But I'm talking. I'm talking out loud. I'm talking a lot. And I'm using breath, and therefore I yawn. Anyway, as I was saying, four of us were sitting side by side by side by side. Um, I have no rhythm with the doctor. Need to do Hassan or Dave. We all three know each other pretty well, so we have a rhythm. Um, plus the doctor seemed to be kind of stuck on one subject, but. I, I, I'm i going to be interested to hear what you guys think about it. It It, it is going to yield some very interesting um, results. And uh, I haven't heard a track of it. I, I hope it's not – I hope it's salvageable uh, because the doctor was not really talking into the microphone that well. And me and Hassan and Dave were on top of our mics because we're fucking comedians. Um, so I hope that the sound quality turns out and, uh, cause I'm, I'm really interested to share it with you guys and, uh, I want, cause I want you guys to kind of, uh, tag along on the journey of frustration that ultimately became kind of in the end, it kind of tied together in a way I was like, Oh, we did it. Um, so that was fun times. And, uh, I think next time I would do it with at least, uh, at least one person less the end so um today's podcast guest is aaron judge aaron and i have known each other for a very long time i met aaron back in my boston days actually i might have already moved from boston to new york but i kept going back to boston a lot to do shows because um, the people who I kind of started out with were becoming more and more established, so I went and spent a lot of time in Boston. Um, even though I only did stand-up comedy in Boston truly for one year and then went to New York. Um, but Aaron Judge I met in that time when I was going back and forth to Boston, and we just kind of hit it off. I think she's a very interesting, thoughtful person. Um, she, uh, Her subject was Satisfaction which uh, I think ties in to the next couple of things that are happening on this podcast. Uh, I think satisfaction ties into the conversation that uh, I am going to uh, put up with Emily Maya Mills, who's the next podcast guest. 
And um, after that will probably be the live episode that I did at PodFest. So the issue of satisfaction um, rolls into that as well. I'll, I will give you a teaser word um, for the live podcast. Anxiety, which I believe was a conversation I had with Rob Gleason. So Hudson had some thoughts on that subject, and we kind of uh, circled around it like jazz. And uh, I just wanted to tease you guys with that. So, yes, here's Aaron. Every yeah. time I'm walking around outside, even if it's hot sun, the breeze just like kisses my skin. Ooh, it feels that's delicious. poetic, Aaron. Thank you. The breeze just kisses my skin, I like can't... a new lover trying to figure out where my spots are. But one that excites me every time. Ooh. Like it's really like Los Angeles. The like any West Coast breeze just feels different. I think it's because the air is clean. It's coming off the ocean. Yeah. And the East Coast, like our, we have the ocean, but the air comes off. You know, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> is the air cleaner here than it is in New York? Is that I feel a real like it has thing? to be. I mean, obviously there's smog and obviously there's pollution here. Yeah, but people who, have, people who have lived here since the 70s, they said about the mid-90s because of all the, the smog checks and all the, the, the new the laws, emission standards. the emission standards, that the air here, they're like in the 90s you went outside and you smelled sulfur no matter where you went. And I think Bill Maher was talking about it, like how the air has been become significantly cleaner. Well, the Pacific Ocean cleans the air. Like the, hmm. the currents, like the air currents come across the same way, you know, the way weather patterns do. So right, like right, the, right. the air comes off the ocean here. And uh, on the Atlantic Ocean, on the Atlantic coast, the air comes off the land, essentially. Like True. part of Florida and, you know, where there's the hurricanes and the jet stream and stuff, right, right. you get some air off the water, but it's just off the coast. Yeah, the air in the form of hurricanes. Right, exactly. The very, very strong air. Very strong. <laughs> a hurricane's just a really strong breeze. It does, it does not kiss it the skin. It kisses my skin until it really, it I'm takes blistered. A, it takes a baseball bat to the skin. That's, <laughs> that's what that breeze does. Right. Um... But yeah, I mean, it's like, and I live in a very walkable neighborhood. This, there's a reason that a lot of this neighborhood has a lot of New York transplants. That was the reason I didn't want to move here at first. I was like, I don't want to see everyone I fucking know from New York. That's a bad idea. And I'm like, no, that's actually a good idea. I like that I can walk to friends' houses around here. It's amazing, and this I, this is exactly where I would want to live out here because Vermont Ave is is it's a it's a real neighborhood. Did you go over to Hillhurst? I've been over there before, but I wasn't there today. Oh, okay. Just this whole this this uh, rectangle. Yeah. Of Vermont and Hillhurst from Los Feliz to Hollywood. It's a fucking neighborhood. It's great. It's a it's a Bermuda rectangle. I went to uh I went to Skylight, which I love. Oh yeah. One of the best. I, I like to go to all the good bookstores. Yeah. Did you go to the comic book version of it too? Uh it's sort of like coffee table art and stuff. There's another there's like an annex for Skylight. The annex has all the comics in it. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I just sort of looked in the window over there. Mm-hmm. Well if you want to find all the comic books, that's where it they they moved it. It's it not used my to be bag. in a bigger space, and then they moved it to the smaller space. What's well, not your bag? Comic books? Yeah. They were until I was in seventh grade. Then I stopped reading them all together just because I got just distracted by shit. And then Jackie Cation was on my 
ass about reading this particular comic. Which one? It's called um, Incognito. Okay. And I read it. It's by a guy named Ed Brubaker, uh-huh. who is nothing short of a genius. Mm. Um, he moved to Los Angeles last year from Seattle. He instantly had nine te- television shows in development. Nine is a lot. Yeah, but a lot of writers, a lot of writers on these shows are comic book guys. That's awesome. Like the guy who's doing Under the Dome is Brian K. Vaughn, who's responsible for this comic called Why the Last Man. Oh is, yeah, no, my my friend Jenny likes that one. It's a lot. It's incredible. She likes comic books. I can't keep up. Well, but that's the thing is that like. What Jackie Cation showed me were I, – I, I thought because in the 80s when we grew up, the 80s and 90s, DC and Marvel became the, the fucking two-headed monsters. Well, my friends were into indie comics in high school. But, but, but I'm saying that like indie comics took a big step away like because, because DC and Marvel were pushing so, for commerciality so yeah. hard yeah. that I even thought like, oh, it's just superhero shit. But there's all these indie comics – that I was completely unaware of. Oh, I, I read in high school. I read in college. I read Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, and uh, that guy Jonan Vasquez. He's mm-hmm. awesome. I really mm-hmm. like him. And uh, this might be the best thing about my marriage. My husband loves Locas, the comic. It's a it was a strip, and then it was gra- comic books and graphic novels. And there's a compendium, and it's about these um, Mexican American lesbian wrestlers. They're they're uh, lesbians. They uh, have all this they have this dyke drama. Locas is Spanish for crazies, but with a feminine. Yeah, female crazies, and uh, they have and they they also participate in sort of the the wrestling culture. Hmm. And uh, my mother got that for my husband for Christmas. Oh, <laughs> and she fucking scored on that one because that's it sounds incredible. Yeah, and so like it's like our giant copy of that is inscribed by my mother to my husband, and Aww. I'm like, my family is the best family. <laughs> So ridiculous. The the lesbian Latina comic book is from my mother to my husband. Hey, Texas. So <laughs> I just feel like there's a lot of incredible writers that are writing comics. A lot of some of the most amazing TV shows and movies are coming out from comic books. Not even just superhero shit, but like things that are like these sprawling, incredible stories. Well, I feel like if you pitch something, no one listens to you. And even if – I mean – it. It comic books are kind of the demonstration of the concept, mm-hmm. and I feel like now people do like web clips and little series teasers, and you know it's easy to produce something that's a short to be like, hey, this is what it'll kind of look like, right. and it enables people who are in development to be like, oh, now I see it because they don't see anything anymore. They don't see. Did they you don't ever, see. I keep talking about this, and I've talked about this on the podcast before. And apologies, audience, fuck them. Did you read that Steven Soderbergh or hear his speech that he did at the San Francisco International Film Festival? Did not. Fucking, it was called the State of the Cinema. So I guess every year someone gives a State of the so Cinema he, address. He kindled it. He kindled it. <laughs> uh, and that he, because you know he kind of is retired from directing. Okay. Right now. Uh huh. And he basically did a speech of he differentiated between movies and cinema. He's mm-hmm. like movies is watching something, something that you watch. But cinema is art. It's an idea that would not exist if it were not for this filmmaker, you know, this writer, this director, so and such. If they did not envision this, this thing would not exist. Right. It's not some protoplasm. Like, who can we plug into this project that we're definitely going to make anyway because it's a moneymaker. Exactly. And that's the other thing that he gets on is 
the the indie system versus the studio system and how much money is being made. And he's ta- he's talked specifically about behind the candelabra. He he mentions his own movies only ever from a financial standpoint. Wow. And he talks about how addicted because he's basically saying, and this is something I've said before, the age of creative people running studios is over. These are hedge fund uh, investment banker people who know how to run a business, but they do not know movies. He has a whole thing about these people do not know movies. They have no frame of reference. Wow. He's like, all they know is what made money and what didn't make money. He's mm-hmm. like, this is why they keep making movies, like remake remakes, remakes of movies sequels. that were already successful. Right. And remakes and sequels, like, you know, the, and then the sequel remakes. Because they're addicted to metrics. Yeah. He's like, metrics that don't work. They're always telling you, oh, this movie will do this much. And then it doesn't. No, it doesn't. He's like, it, they, they're wrong the majority of the time but they trust in them like they're always right that's a very common problem in america right now Mm -hmm. people who are like oh yeah no we 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 know what's gonna happen we know we can predict we can put this forward and people being like but you're always like the fact that they're always wrong doesn't seem to have consequences do you know what my favorite example of that is i can't tell you how many pundits were like here come the riots when the trayvon martin verdict came in right they were all like they were all like okay the verdict's tomorrow so everybody battened down the hatches all these middle-aged white guys were like look we know what's gonna happen riots no riots and no consequences black people would be angry (laughs) (laughs) yeah and like just their reflexive narrow-minded ignorant view was so easy for them to just prattle on about how there were definitely going to be riots and the fact that there were none had no consequences for these pundits who were like wait for the right like there's no there's no consequences for being wrong when you're so cocksure mm-hmm. and you're so your stakes are high whether you're making an eight billion dollar movie or making a claim about an entire sector of the united states population like the there's no consequences for being wrong I, that astounds me here's a question um, because there's this that George Zimmerman is in the news again, right? Uh, for some gunplay <laughs> <laughs> having to do with, I believe it's his wife, Ex- estranged wife. Est- oh, well, yeah, how, how would you be estranged? She filed for divorce and he pulled a gun on her, allegedly. He was just allegedly, all he was doing was self defending his marriage. Um, so here's my question. And this is a gigantic subject, but I won't let this waylay us from what is the subject that we're here to talk about today. Maybe it'll all it'll all go into each other. It'll right. all meld. It'll all kiss the skin. <laughs> um, should there have been riots? Ooh, because here's the thing, and we talked about this. the The American protest is dead. With the, with the exception of Occupy Wall Street, which was a movement of people actually going to do something. The thing is that we protest now by putting shit up on the internet, mm. by posting about it on Facebook, by signing a petition, et cetera, et cetera. That's the way that we kind of protest now mm. is from the comfort of our own homes. Mm. So sometimes it's like, what do you think about the idea of of people having to make a statement by publicly disturbing the system, the life, which, by the way, is illegal. Right. It's illegal to gather like that unless you have a written permission right. from the government. So you can protest. They get to say you can protest in these param- parameters. Right. 
and they've gotten more and more ridiculous about that and they've used the threat of terrorism quote unquote as a as an as a a shield to limit where people stand and protest here's what i i remember from being a very serious activist in college mm-hmm. and by serious i mean humorless and cocksure and wrong women's studies activist i was not i was a social women's college i was a women i was at a women's college but i was part of this organization that was like extremely marxist okay and i i it was all off campus and i was all always but in which Boston. one were you harpo groucho i yeah no zeppo it was weird oh weird to be a zeppo marxist. i know i know okay continue so i i remember like going to an organizing meeting and everybody was fetishizing seattle Seattle in 1999 when they shut down the World Trade Organization meetings and nobody saw it coming. Mm-hmm. Like, and the impulse to protest was at a peak. People were really going out there and protesting. And I went to a lot of protests in college and a mm-hmm. lot of demonstrations. And I remember this one woman at a, at a workshop once from the civil rights movement. She was like, um, a demonstration is a demonstration that a movement exists you have to build your movement and then have your demonstration to demonstrate that behind the scenes people are organized and talking about this. Mm. You can't just throw a big parade protest because it's it's like what is everybody there for? It's like you might as well just call Burning Man a protest. It's it's a proof of an ideology that exists. But it has to be it has to be an ideology. I mean, the reasons people oppose for example, you know, George Zimmerman getting off um, are many and varied. They're mm-hmm. not. It's not a. It's not a singular ideology. Right. And so it's this idea that you need to like have a movement. You need to build something that you're. You have a goal. You have a direct goal for social change. And the conflation of racial justice and gun control is. I mean, those are divergent. Not necessarily completely divergent, but like completely, in some ways, isolated mm-hmm. ideas. And like. If you just are upset about what happened with Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, then you're going out into the streets. Well, what are you there for? Are you there about gun control? You're there about um, you racial know, injustice. Racial injustice. Are you there about the fact that Florida sucks? Which one is it? Yeah, yeah. Be Which, clear. Are you anti-Florida? Do you want Florida to secede? Let's switch Florida and Puerto Rico. Because like the whole thing about Puerto Rican statehood is we already have 50 states. 51 is an awkward number. Like, let's kick out Florida. Hey, you know, you know what's 51? Walter White's age. <laughs> That makes this country breaking bad. Mm. <laughs> we can just put him on our flag where exactly. all the stars were. All the stars. Just like, just... A, just like, a, like one of those weird sort of relief graffiti style. 25 sets of his eyes on the flag <laughs> with the glasses and that fucking glaze. And, yeah. And then one, I don't know, gun. One gun. Oh, oh actually, it would be 25 a piece pairs of, of eyes and one it would gun. Be that, it would be that blue meth, wouldn't it? Right. The Heisenberg special. Yeah. But anyway, as you were saying. Um, I, I think demonstrations, like whether there should have been riots, like that's kind of a, it's not really, to, like riots are a spontaneous occurrence. You can't really throw a riot. Yeah, you can't throw a riot, but what a riot does is demonstrate. <laughs> <laughs> it demonstrates that there are people who are very unhappy with what happened. The but problem riots is. Happen, is that- riots happen where those people live. And like a lot of what people say about riots is it's just breaking your toys. It's like a tantrum. Yeah. It's not like a riot's going to happen in, uh, you know, uh, Westchester County, New York. Well, but or also like, riots or- Orange have County, California. synonymous with the Los Angeles Lakers winning. So it's like yeah. I haven't, I, I can't even think of the last time there was a riot over 
an actual injustice or a cause. It's just kind of like, the Red Sox won, let's rip up the streets. Right. There was a riot, um, a little riot, uh, about a teenager who was shot in Brooklyn recently. Oh, really? By the cops, yeah. Oh, there was a riot, a small riot in, um, I guess it was Crown Heights. Mm. And the guy who's the city, the, the representative in the city council for that region is very active on Twitter. And uh, he was kind of trying to mitigate the situation and trying to trying to create a liaison between the citizens and the police uh, through Twitter during mm. that whole debacle. But yeah, I mean, a, a, a young teenage boy was shot by the cops, killed. How many cops? I don't know the details. It just seems that I remember in what was it called? Uh, was it Blink? Yeah. There yeah. was the whole thing about Amadou Diallo. Yeah, uh, and, and 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 where that's the part where uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about taking that quiz about like which person's bad right and he's like and i kept picking the black people what you need to know about this is i'm black (laughs) and then you're like all right malcolm gladwell's black i forgot but they also the other thing that he the other point that he makes is that when cops are in groups they start to have a bit of a mob mentality well and and i think the bigger point that he makes is when cops are in a tough situation they freak out yeah, and if and there's, there's a bunch this, of them freaking out at the same time, shit's going to get fired. There's an illusion that everybody who is trained with a gun, whether they're a soldier or a police officer, is, you know, the In, born the born identity. Yeah. That they just snap into, like, perfect efficiency. They become a killing machine. Their errors are gone. They, yeah. They've whipped out the errors. Nope. That's, I mean, that's absolutely not true. That might be true of some special forces who go through certain circumstances but for the most part everybody who's ever i mean my mother works on a college campus and it's in texas and everybody wants to carry guns except her iraq war vets which she has a certain number of in her school in her classes and they're always like you you don't know what you would do if somebody opened fire in here you think you know you think you know that you would calmly pull out your weapon and shoot them but that's not that's not what happens when someone shoots at you you've never been shot at trust me it's an imperfect situation it and it is it is it is it leads to a certain internal chaos that can't really be controlled or or blocked out ahead of time there is a uh a section in it's it's a combination of things actually a book called emotional intelligence have you ever read that book no great book from the 1970s uh this guy named daniel goleman yeah and i was originally turned off by it because it sounded like it was a self-help book right but it actually has very little to do with that it's all science. It's all about our emotions, our chemical reactions that inform our bodies, and our bodies inform our emotions, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so we compartmentalize that the intellect and the emotion and emotionality are completely different. One's over there, do, one's over there playing, and one's over there reading. But right. they inform each other. Right. You know, they're all in us. And so he talked about the uh, that there's this a, a sort of a when you see something and you react, there's actually two things that there are two paths to the part of your brain that understands what's happening. There's one that kind of takes longer and it processes it what happens and it gets there longer. Then there's the other one that's like a immediate thing right. where the brain the is blink. really sloppy in yeah. what it decides as a match. He's like, for instance, you're walking down a forest path out of the corner of your eye. You see something. Your brain decides it's a snake. You run, you flip over a bush Right. And by the time you're on the other brush, the other part of your brain realizes it was a stick. Right. So you but you've already reacted before right. you understood what it was. Mm-hmm. So those are the two reactions. One's like snake. You're all gone. Then you're like, wait a minute. That's a stick. 
Yeah. It gets there after you've already thought it's a snake. So if there's a gun in your hand, you probably would have shot the shit out of that stick before you're like, oh, that's just a stick. Right. Now, no, it's sh- true. And that's what they say, the, you know, the whole, the whole uh, wallet gun confusion. Oh. It's a black object in your hand. In a black man's hand. Mm, yeah. I watch New Jack City. They always shooting at people. <laughs> That's what the news taught me. <laughs> anyway, we're getting kind of off topic, but not at the same time. I guess it was, just, it was about trance. That's what the improv teacher, Keith Johnstone, talks about. So it's like that thing that happens is sometimes we go into a trance. Is yeah. that we react in ways that we weren't expecting to react. You know, like, for instance, if you're in a bank, someone comes in with a gun, you might jump over a table. and You're like, how do I get behind this table? You don't even know sometimes. You know, and that one of the most interesting examples of this that's more positive than what you usually hear is people who respond in heroic ways. Mm -hmm. They're like, people are like, how did you find the courage to do this heroic thing, to jump in front of this car, to, to, to go jump onto these train tracks, to do to jump over this fence and save this person every single time the person's like i didn't make a choice it's just what i did yeah you know there there's no point at which they did a cost benefit analysis like they in, had they had a heroic reaction where others might have had fight or flight like they had in, fight rather than flight in boston at the marathon where you can clearly see people like oh i gotta go help and they just went toward went the towards. explosion there's those, those who go towards and those that go away those that go towards and those that go away or yeah. like in the 12th episode of orange is the new black where uh <laughs> have you watched <laughs> all of it I haven't watched any of it. Oh, my God. Forget it. Man. I know. Forget it. There goes all my cards, all of my memberships. All your, it's a house of cards. <laughs> Another Netflix original series. <laughs> Everything's about Netflix these days. It is. Don't you know? Um, but getting on to our, our, our conversation, our, our topic, our subject of the day is you can't get no. Da-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Anyone who's listening has already looked at the title. <laughs> but to our visually impaired listeners, when you talk about what satisfaction is, what the hell is it that you're talking? What, well, what the hell is it that you're talking? What is I talking? Why became, I just um, a <laughs> What the hell is it that you're talking? <laughs> what are you talking about when you say satisfaction? That's the thing is that I don't know what satisfaction Ooh, is. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it feels like. Well, well, but you do. Right? Because you're saying that it's an esoteric idea that you're supposed to feel, feel you're supposed to feel satisfied. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I recognize satisfaction as something that is absent from my experience of a lot of different elements of my own life and my relationship with myself. And so satisfaction is something that I only after a lot of like inner analysis of myself have realized is that which is lacking. You know, it's not like I was like, where's my satisfaction? It's like I thought for a really long time, like, what is, why am I unhappy about this? Why am I unhappy about that? Why can't I figure out how to be better at this or better at that? And ultimately, one of the things that I've realized in the last year about myself is that I'm never satisfied with myself. And I'm never satisfied with a lot of the elements of my life. Mm. I cannot find satisfaction. So is it this thing that you believe you are supposed to eventually feel and you'll know what it feels like when you feel it? Or is it something that... Because I wonder if it's the the bear at the zoo analogy. This is how I've explained how sometimes it's hard for me to cry, right? Because I'm not anti-crying. I think crying is very valuable. It's a, if it happens, it's supposed to happen. 
But sometimes when I start to cry, I go, oh, I'm going to cry. And then it all retreats. I become self-conscious of it. Oh, wow. So it's kind of like everyone's at the bear cave. The bear's going to come out. Suddenly everyone's taking pictures and their bear's like, well, I'm not fucking going out there. Right. So is it be- so sometimes becoming conscious, uh, uh, becoming self-conscious of it. Like, like you're supposed to feel satisfied, so you're thinking about it. And does that make it more elusive? I I think that it's kind of, for me, the opposite. I think the trajectory that I've been on for the past three months, since I've identified, really in the past year, identified satisfaction as the thing that I don't offer myself. I don't offer myself a feeling of, hey, Aaron, that's good enough, or that's enough, or that's, you know. That's good. That's good. That's sufficient in some way, whether it's for today, this week, for where you are in your life at age 32, whatever it is. Like, I have never offered myself that. I've always been dissatisfied. I've always been dissatisfied with me. Identifying satisfaction as something that I refuse to give myself or have failed to give myself in the past has enabled me to kind of focus on that and start to set more reasonable parameters for myself such that I'm now starting to feel satisfaction. And I'm also conscious of the areas of my life in which I do feel some measure of satisfaction. But you're saying that you've discovered that it's something that you have to give yourself permission to feel that. And that it's the fire, like the lack of satisfaction is the fire that fuels me to be constantly neurotic and dissatisfied, Mm. dissatisfied. I mean, obviously, right. That's, that's the word. That's the opposite of it. Right. So I'm so like I sit around going, why am I so dissatisfied? Why am I so dissatisfied? Why am I? And finally, it's like because I don't let myself feel satisfaction, you know, and it's it's it can be it's sort of a a more simple solution. It's like, well, what are my what are the things that I'm measuring myself against? Mm. What am I not measuring up to? What What is my life not meeting? What what? expectations or goals and where did those expectations come from right and and also just the fact that most of them are just bottomless and like sky high there's no achieving them there's no getting there it's like i've heard i've heard so many women talk about like um weight and they think that they have reasonable goals but it quickly becomes revealed and obvious that they cannot be skinny enough that there's no such thing as like a low a weight at which they're like I'm too thin thin, and that is disturbing because that's a really gross thing to but be then, too thin and it, and it puts an amount then you're putting in a, such psychological pressure on yourself that it it feels impossible. Thus, why ever try? There's there's a lot of that. There's a lot of why try if you don't know if you know you can never get there. Mm-hmm. But there's also just like, well, what are, what is the point? I'm on a hamster wheel. You know, if there's no, if I get, you know, it's like so many people talk about getting on TV as a stand-up for the first time. Mm-hmm. And whenever that happens to you, you know, from a lot of people at least, it feels like, well, I should have had this three years ago. <laughs> I know? remember when we did, uh, we were live at Gotham the same season, Same season, we? yeah. I remember my joke to Roger Hales, who was on my episode, yeah. was, I guess we can retire. <laughs> but I remember it, it became quickly apparent to me that this thing that I had been fretting and stressed about was about to happen, but it didn't really change that much. No. Like I was still looking at my bank account and there was $50 in there. Right. Which is a lot less than rent. Right. So I was like, okay, that's what I, and that in my sense, in my sense, that in my, for me, is the key to my dissatisfaction. 
financial? Well, it's that I I have learned how little I give myself credit for anything that I've achieved because I'm looking at my bank account. I'm looking and thinking about everyone I owe money to, that there is this goal of feeling financially independent. And then I think, well, I've made so many mistakes so long ago and sat on them for so long that perhaps there is no way for me to actually fix or solve these things. Yeah. So it's no. just like I'm just going to be in this situation. This is the situation I'm going to be in. Having a feeling of financial uh, ease, even the smallest amount of ease, is incredibly – like it opens up your life in this way. It does. And, and when you're you not don't, stressed. The stress, the constant low-grade stress of knowing that you owe money that you may not be able to cobble together is debilitating. And so like it affects your health. It affects everything. And I, then I don't feel creative. Right. Then it, the thing that is my livelihood, right. writing, acting, performance, stand-up, stand up. I'm just sitting here fretting about who do I need to call, who do I need to avoid. Who do I need to satisfy? How much money am I going to have at this time? Okay, I'm looking at my docket like, okay, I got this on the books. This is how much money I'm going to make. Uh, still not enough, right? Right. So it's like... I'm not in the creative place, if you will, the, the right mindset to, quote, unquote, do the thing or achieve the thing that's just going to set me adrift forever. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is I, I really feel like not having like having career goals, having some checklist of, 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 of goals or having like financial goals or material possession goals or whatever. Like those are stand-ins and those are things that can give you a sort of temporary sense of satisfaction, mm -hmm. but it's ephemeral because you have to find satisfaction in not only the times when you're not getting some TV credit or some big fat check, but also in like a more general way where like, you're like, did I do a good enough job for my damn self today? Mm -hmm. Like, am I, am I satisfied with the amount of work that I've done, the amount of pleasure that I've experienced, whatever it is to like, be like, okay, today was, today was a day well lived. I'm living my life now in a way that feels satisfying. So do you feel, cause I have a thing to throw out here. Do you feel that some of this, uh, this dissatisfaction is a result of career stuff more than anything else? No, I think that it's, um, it's just sort of growing up without a lot of guidance. Ah, thank you. Yeah. That actually puts me to my next point. Yeah, like I really feel like no one ever set any expectations for me, and so I set them for myself, and it was be the best at everything all the time. <laughs> you know, just that simple thing. You know, that and you like, can do tomorrow, right? And like, or right now, if I just had the will. If I just had the will, I um, sometimes when I'm writing, uh, you know, because I wrote a lot of, I used to write a lot of plays in high in my high school and college. I was in a playwriting fucking class you were in conservatory so you were uh, i was in conservatory acting. yes but the playwriting class weirdly enough was in the english department it had nothing to do with the theater department wow and there were only graduate courses you had to submit to get into the graduate playwriting class which i got into awesome and i was also confused i was like a sophomore in this graduate playwriting class which which counted as my liberal arts course right which i was like awesome and i remember asking the teacher uh why was I in this class? Because you had to submit writing, but I didn't submit anything that was finished. And she was like, you have a flair for dialogue and character that 
is just very natural to you that a lot of people don't have. They're going to struggle with this. And that is true. What I struggle with is structure. Oh, I can write the fuck out of people talking to each other. Does it lead anywhere? Who the fuck knows? Right. <laughs> but the point is, and, and you kind of take me, took me back to this thing, is I have rarely finished shit when it was those, those plays that were always like, I'd write two acts and I end up being, I'm like, this is going to be a three-act play because this isn't finished. Right. Or write one act and I'm like, this is going to be a two-act play because this isn't finished. But I would hit this place where I didn't know what to do with it and give up a lot of the times. Wow. Because if it's not, I should be in this place where just genius comes out of my fingertips. Why isn't genius just coming out of my fingertips? Yeah. Why do I have to revise and look at this again? If yeah. I was good at this, it would just be good straight to the page. What an impossible standard. Yeah. No, I think, I think that we get really screwed up about talent. Well, and this is why I start to go sometimes. This is why the well-off are running Hollywood. Because they just have the perfect balance of confidence and can-do that they just fucking do shit. Yeah, and I, I think that that is true. I, I think that the enemy of that, I look at a, my group of social friends mm -hmm. who are not my comedy friends, but like in my actual friendship life, I've gravitated to these people, a lot of whom were just extremely, extremely smart all the way through public or private school, whatever it was. But something happened along the way, whether it was in college or in high school towards the end. So, like, we're, like, and this happened to me, too, 16, 17, 18 years old, before we ever needed to study or ask a question or get help. Like, no one, we never needed, like, the work, the schoolwork, it's, like, do your homework, do this. And it's, like, I can do that. Like, there was never a barrier which was, a, like, I don't understand this. Mm -hmm. Or I can't, I can't organize my time. I have, you know, I have, this is due in six weeks. I have to break it up into smaller components. And I need help figuring that out. No, we were all labeled as gifted. We thought of ourselves as naturally talented, and we didn't realize until we were in our late teens or early 20s that we didn't have to know how to do everything off the bat, that we could, like, get help, read a book, ask a tutor, whatever it was. And so when we first encountered the things that we couldn't do naturally, mm -hmm. we freaked out. Well, here's a question, because there was an article about this, and I feel like it's fraught in some stuff. Uh, whenever there's an article, it's like, men tend to be like this and women tend to be like that. I'm dubious. Right. right? Of course. Good. But there's something to be said about socialization. Of course. Right. Now, when I never am like, these are biological facts. Right. But we're taught, we're pushed and prodded to be a certain way. Sure. To, because of our gender. Yes, right? because our society is gendered. Now, what you said actually kind of falls in with what this article was, which is something I've read before, and somebody sent it to me again, that women tend to, uh, more so than men, when they're learning, see uh, smarts as something that is just natural, right. something that is innate. Yeah. Be and it has to do with the way that young girls and young boys are talked to. Because they said that something like young girls who are talented or, or smart tend to be told, you're so smart, you're so clever. 
And that trains them to believe that those things are just innate. Yeah. So when there's something that is difficult to them, they just don't go toward that. Right. It's either every, it's either easy or it's not. It's easier. You can't do it. Yeah. And young boys are just are told if you worked harder, you could get this. Right. So they don't have the they're So they're not afraid to ask the questions and they see it as like, yeah, OK, I'll just get better at this. Whereas girls tend to see it as like, I'm either good at this or I'm not. Well, I think, I mean, what that really boils down to in a really sad way is that females are objectified and males are the subjects. And what I think is really interesting in comedy is that, you know, the idea that there are fewer women or that women have a harder time in, in the world of comedy, there's so much rejection and there's so much that you have to, you have to ask and ask and ask and ask and ask. And a lot of women are um, held back from that. They don't want to ask. They're afraid to put themselves out there. But I think that the other thing is the way that, that the industry or the powers that be, male or female, reject women is different. Like, it's like, you know, you, you're five years in, young man. You're not ready. So, no, you can't have this. You're not ready. Uh, keep working. But mm-hmm. with girls, I think they look at women and, and in comedy and they're like, um, you're five years in. You're not funny. You know, you can't have this because you're not good. There's no idea that a female comedian is going to develop. Yeah, but and that also proves the same point, though. Yeah, it does. It's kind of like you're either good at this, you're not, girl, right. boy, you're gonna get good. Look at you. You're hardworking. You're thinking about this. Good for you. And I, I think that that um, the the standards that I have for myself are just that I should have limitless capacity to do everything all at the same time, you know. And that's the standard that is set by women's magazines. Look at the, they have like eight sections, and they're all things that you're supposed to be experts at. You're supposed to be an expert in love, dating, health, beauty. Well, but the secret message there is that is they're constantly being like, did you know you weren't good at this? Keep well, buying yeah, our magazine. No. Yeah, yeah. And like here's a list of, you know, we've been putting out eight or we put, put out 52 issues of this magazine a year. There's like eight or 16 just like it. And we've been doing it for 50 years. And every single issue is just a list of things that you have to do. Ten things that you should be worried about, about your health. 15 ways to spice up your love life, 10 ways to spruce up your kitchen. It's like what it's just a list of to do's. If you did everything women's magazines told you to do, like even one of them for a year, you couldn't have a job hmm. except maybe for all the parts where you're supposed to like figure out how to be more diplomatic at work or whatever. <laughs> like it's just constantly, constantly like tweaking, perfecting yourself. Uh, and it's, it's impossible. Yeah. That's the thing. Did you know you weren't perfect? We'll show you how. Right. And you know you're not perfect, so and we're sure you're anxious about it. Mm-hmm. So here are some things to keep in mind. <laughs> to not be so anxious. Did you do those correctly? Because next issue... Are you anxious enough? <laughs> are you too anxious? <laughs> it's beautiful. But, like, I, I, that's what I'm saying. That like, I guess like when I say that like the well-off are running shit, it's just because... I guess I always think about some people that I started out with that are doing incredibly well didn't have the financial worry that I had coming out of college. No. Um, Didn't have to pay their own rent in New York as a 23-year-old. As a 23-year-old, didn't have the exact same amount of money that their parents had. Where it's just like, I can't ask my parents for money. They don't fucking have it. Right. They're still struggling as I am struggling. Right. Right? So, uh, but then at the same time, like, growing up in that environment, in a way, sometimes I, well, sometimes, in a way I feel, makes me feel that I don't deserve certain things as What do well. you mean? 
Well, I, I have a really hard time with that. I feel like I've I, internalized I've, it. I've had some good things come my way recently, and I'm just like, I'm not. I shouldn't be enjoying this. Well, I, I, that's kind of what I mean. I mean, like, it's not like I was ever specifically told. Even though, yes, of course, I have been told. It's the the black thing is you ain't shit, you know, or you. You think you're better? You think you're better than me? Who do you think you you think you're better than you me? Think you're better than me? That's, that whole thing. Yeah, that's my Brooklyn, my Catholic family. And then the black the thing Bronx is, family. you ain't shit, right? Right. Uh, which Questlove actually wrote this beautiful that's uh, great essay about it's that so phrase and how he's internalized it. So I see in myself the way that I've internalized certain things that I belong in a certain place, and if I transcend that place, it means that I. I'm in a place where I don't belong. Yeah. And then I'm in, then I belong nowhere. Right. I'm no one's. I'm a no I'm no man. I'm one man island. Right? So yeah. I internalize that in sometimes the self sabotage. But sometimes the well off are constantly told, You're doing okay, you're gonna be okay. And they hold it in there so they don't put the amount of uh stakes on one thing that I will put. Right. Which which makes me shrink from doing that thing because the stakes are so high in my head. For them, it's just like, yeah, I'm just going to do that and I'm going to move on to the next thing. Yeah. And then they're gaining the skill set because they're not they're not so precious about fucking everything. Right. I'm not and I I think I'm pretty good in my career. Like I'm not precious about my work in that way. Like I'm not I'm not perfectionistic about my creative endeavors as much as I am about everything else. And what I realized is that a lot of what I've learned to do in my creative realm, uh, because I've really internalized, because I come from a background of like artists are not part of my family. Mm-hmm. Like we have not, there's, that's not a thing. Being a creative person is not, you know, so I had to make it up. And it's not, it's not something that was really encouraged in my academic background either. Like you came from like theater and you came from training in some respects in the arts. I didn't, I didn't have any training in the arts except as like fine arts interpret, like appreciation interpretation and like english literature criticism right so other than that like the idea that like okay here's what an artist does an artist has this open-ended view an artist has a wide idea of like what's possible an artist drafts an artist puts things together an artist feels compelled to put words to paper and does it i've i feel like i've been able to do that and i've created this sort of open-ended creativity in my life with my stand-up and on stage and in, you know, when I write movies or when I write screenplays or scripts or blog entries, anything. And now I'm applying that to the rest of my life where I've been more perfectionistic in the past and try to be more open-ended about my approach to things like exercise. Like what is exercise? Is exercise, you know, running two hours a day and also doing yoga and also weightlifting? Like what am I, what are my goals with? And like, I've had these rigid ideas of that. And now it's like, I'm going to go to the park and just spend as much time at the park as I feel like spending and maybe I'll hike and maybe I'll swim and maybe I'll write and maybe I'll, you know, I'll do whatever feels right in the moment or I'll go to my yoga mat. And instead of being like, I have to spend 30 minutes doing this particular routine or set of poses, I'll be like, I'll do what feels good. I'll, I know the poses. I'll do what comes naturally for however long it feels good. And instead of having these sort of rigid goals that are dictated from above, which I would always find limitless like i would but that was a huge barrier to satisfaction just like you can't exercise enough like you can't like there's no at any point where you're doing like an hour a day why not an hour and a half right why not two hours why not push yourself harder and that's i guess that's what i'm trying to get at when i say the whole thing about the well-off or running shit because i feel like 
they're they're just given such they're, it's such confidence and self-assuredness is instilled in them and they don't have to think about it they don't have to they don't have to struggle with like i can do this or i can't do this so right but, but in I, that sense what i'm saying with you is when you're talking about these standards that have been set from above yeah. i'm curious as to where the hell is above right Who, well where, that's yeah, that's ahead. the thing, though. Like, I think that what you're saying about the well-off and, and people uh, – well, I guess what you mean is people who have financial means and also, like, privilege in other ways. Like, they feel a sense of entitlement that comes very naturally, and they've been given opportunities that they don't even necessarily appreciate. They think that they're standard issue. Um, I think that that is something that you and I can't really aspire to feel because we're <laughs> critics of it. Yeah. Where we see the holes everywhere and that a lot of those sometimes I'm like, but they're doing so much. Yeah. But a lot of times they measure what they're doing by, you know, money or by goal, by like material ends or by how hot their girlfriend is and like how good of prizes, how good of arm candy she is. Like, and there's these sort of, there's these external, still external, um, measures for them about how well they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that, when you change the locus of control and make it something that's within yourself, like have I satisfied myself today? Have I, have I given breath to my soul? Have I encouraged my friends and loved ones and also felt encouraged and expressed myself? You know, have I hurt myself or have I helped myself? Have I done good things for my health or bad things for my health or neutral things for my health? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, like those, those sorts of things that are completely at your own measure. There are things that you are the only judge of in the end. That, I think, is the only way to feel genuine satisfaction. Here's something. You, like myself, are a cusper, that we're on that cusp between Gen X and Millennial. Yes. Yeah, we are. That, and I have been thinking about this a lot because I'm seeing how I have equal an unholy union of the worst of those two fucking generations. I know. Just the Gen X, what's the point? But then also the millennial, That that's a millennial trait is to have impossibly high expectations. For right now. Which can only lead to impossibly high levels of disappointment. Yeah, and like and like that, that everything should have happened for you yesterday. Yes. That's very millennial. And then you're looking at everyone else like, it's happening for them yesterday. Right. Why is it not happening for me yesterday? And yeah, and like... I I am I think I'm very fortunate that my FOMO problems have kind of fallen away. Ooh, the FOMO. But the FOMO is a big problem for people. Major FOMO. <laughs> if you don't know what FOMO that is, that party sounded fun. No it means FOMO. Fear of missing out, guys. Fear of missing out. And I really FOMO arigato. Yeah, no, I I really I really don't have the FOMO as much, and I used to. But I, I started to really let myself miss things and not freak out about them mm. because there's not enough hours in life. There you know? isn't. But there is, in a way, when you let yourself be present as oh, opposed yeah. to thinking about what you could be doing, thinking about what you actually are doing. Right. And, f and being where you are and focusing on what you're doing. Which is hard. I think it's getting easier for me. I really, I really think that, you know... Having some idea of what really matters to you and actually putting it into practice in your life, that's a really different thing. I know somebody who is um, very, like, 
like her email signature is all you need is love quote the Beatles, you know, mm -hmm. but like, it's clear all she really cares about is achievement and money and f and material success. <laughs> and she's probably not, f she probably feels off because she does have these values of like love and compassion, but she's still adhering to these values that are like put onto her by society. But that's the other thing is that that shit's deep. You know, I mean, like, deep. it's like I it's hard to to fight against that stuff, especially when you're so used to it being there. You don't even see the places that it's manifested itself in your everyday life. Like, it's like in theater school. What we were taught and what I came out of there believing and thinking very akin to a lot of Eastern philosophy. Yeah, very much be present, be in the moment being inside of your body, learning how to know what you need in every single moment. And I'm like, okay, be present. Like, I'm going to really work really hard in being present. Then moving to New York City, and it was a couple years after that that I realized how far away I'd gotten from what I had felt I was in theater school because yeah. New York is designed to rip you out of every single present moment. Yeah. The, the, the fucking Times Square is the holy grail of you not being able to be in yourself. Right. It's just so much happening, so much things vying for your attention. Yeah. So it's just kind of like it was really hard for me to see, and sometimes and still is a lot of ways, to see how much that shit manifests itself in my everyday life. It's very hard to be present when the world around you is designed to rip you away from that. Well, and I think that people like me and maybe like you also, like I'm, I'm not, I'm a pretty responsible person. I'm not like a super, oh, I wouldn't say I'm responsible, but I mean, like <laughs> I feel responsible, Okay, but I'm not a, I'm not a flake. I'm not like an identified, like hippie ass artist. Like not that there's anything wrong with that, but that there's like people who I had a boss at Harvard who like, he would just fly to a city and like not know why he was there. And then he'd call me and be like, why am I in Tallahassee and I'd have to be like you're going to this conference and he'd be like oh oh what am I supposed to talk about and he'd be there already Did and he, he say was far out he's like oh far out pretty much what yeah like oh bummer I didn't realize like <laughs> I have to talk to people <laughs> like I I really felt like that that's a, that's a sort of you know idiosyncratic eccentric genius mentality of like I'm not gonna you know you and I if we get a parking ticket we berate ourselves you know, like, I mean, this this boss of mine would be like, oh, it's just, you know, the world coming up against my genius again. <laughs> like, I can't be bothered to read well, the because signs. I'm looking at the parking ticket thinking, oh, shit, this is going to multiply in a month. Right. I and, can't afford to pay this right now. Yeah. And, and then we get inside that identity of it's it's this conflict of like, I want to be in the moment. I want to be focused on my creative power and potential. But that comes into conflict with like having your ducks in a row and paying your taxes on time, you know, and when you're when you're a creative type who's also supposed to be the administrative assistant of your own life, mm -hmm. it's you have to have too many vertical skills, you know, like we're we're very vertical and instead of horizontally integrated, we're very vertically integrated. I wash my own dishes and I write my own novel, you know, like th that's not something that a novelist had to do in the 17th century. Right. You know, there were not a lot of people. And, like, you could be some bum. You could – because you could just fall off the margins of society. You didn't have, like, thirty, forty thousand dollars 40000 in student loans. Well, I come back to the well-off or running things again. Right. Because, you know what? A lot of those people – and there's two I'm thinking of in my mind 
that were very well off, but they're also incredibly talented, right? Yeah. So I cannot begrudge them any success. And because they're, they've always been super nice to me. Right. So I see them and I'm like, go you, right? Sure. But they also had a leg up. But they also, and so I'm, also the thing is there's a lot of them that you wouldn't even say are talented. They're just proficient. They can get shit done, hmm. right? And that skill set, a lot of because creative types, it's I mean like the, the show business is an unholy marriage of show and business, and business is quantifiable. So yeah. a lot of times that like we just like okay these creative types they're going they're flitty they're flaky they have they have feelings, but they need <laughs> to get it done in this amount of time. Right. So the people who come with that they're like hey I'm creative I can get it done in this amount of time it's like awesome. I, I'm speaking your language. Right. Right? Yeah. So it's like if you're a person that could just bang that shit out at a, in a time frame because you have trained yourself or have been trained to do that, it doesn't necessarily matter sometimes if it's that good. Just it matters that it got done. Yeah. And I, I, I guess for me it's just like I don't really have a problem getting it done. I, I do. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. But like no one wants what I'm getting done yet. Mm. And uh, I'm I'm fine with that. And insofar as i can't be fine with it forever but right. i'm fine with it for right now because i'm mean, and saying no one wants it that's pretty self-deprecating like people listen to what i have to say but um i haven't been hired on a television show even though i've submitted a lot of packets you know right, to, right. to be a writer so that's the measure that i'm putting it against but it is it is something where i can meet my deadlines and i can do a reasonably solid creative job that i think is funny and and good and get it out there in a certain amount of time but I also like if I'm making those deadlines, I'm much more likely to miss my, you know, cell phone bill deadline. Right. There's just an awful lot to keep track of. It's hard to be perfect. It's hard to be perfect. And the penalties for not being perfect um, for our generation are, are pretty much pretty steep. OK, here's what happened to me last night, because I'm uh, I'm kind of in a, a dire. It's not dire, but just like this, this last two, three weeks. I was supposed to get this check from this college that I did. Yes. They mailed it the day before I got to the college. Right. As a favor to me, instead of putting it in my hands. Putting it in my hands like, here's your rent, Baron. That's basically what they would have been happening. My rent has not been paid because I never got the check. Because they had the wrong W-9. And they sent it to New York. Oh, no. But it has my name on it. And so they send it to my college agent in New York, but because it has my name on it and because they have a substitute mailman this month, the mailman's like, this is not the name on the box, and returned it. Oh, no. So, but colleges take fucking forever. So the college wants to conduct a mini investigation to make sure the check is lost before they issue another check to me and mail it to the right address, which is going to take however long it takes. Right. Right. So my agent was like, what I'm going to try to do is have them make it out to me and then I'll make you a check. And the college is like, no, we can't do that because the contracts have already been made. So we'd have to do a completely different contract thing, blah, blah, blah. And the show's already done. So, 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 right. So I had I want to say eighty seven dollars in my bank account. There's twenty dollars that I paid for gas that hasn't been taken out yet. And I'm like, OK, I don't have that twenty dollars. I have sixty seven dollars. Right. So. I had to get my laundry. I took my laundry to get cleaned, and it was sixty bucks. I did a drop-off service because I'm lazy. Right, right. Um, but it's like it's three months of laundry. So sixty dollars, three months of laundry is like twenty dollars a month, which is about what you would spend on laundry 
Sure. In terms of quarters. If you didn't batch it in quite the same yeah. way. It's <laughs> what you would spend on quarters and detergents and stuff like that. It basically evens out. That's how I've convinced myself to justify this thing. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I need $60 to get all this laundry. So if I take the $60 out, I'll only be at $17. And when that $20 goes through, I'll be not good, right? But a friend, comic friend, said, I can lend you $100. So he gave me $100 in cash last night. And before the night was over, when I had $17 in my bank account, I went and deposited that to make sure when these charges went through, I was covered. Yeah. I wake up this morning because I, I, I leave the thing, $117 in my bank account. Good. I'm okay. I wake up this morning. I have $23 in my bank account. I'm like, what the fuck happened? Right. Two overdraft fees of $35, one for a $5 coffee at Coffee Bean and one for $2 that I paid at a parking meter. Parking meter. So $7 turned into $77 that got taken out. And I'm like, what? I put this money in there. They reversed it. Oh, good. So I had the money back. That's great. But this is an example of when you're flirting with zero a lot in your bank account, you have to play it fucking perfect or they will charge you five times what it cost. It's so wrong. For getting that thing. It's so wrong. And it's so scary. Like I uh... – I noticed that there's a nick in the um, windshield of my rental car. Oh, uh, was it there when you rented it? I'm gonna say that it was. Did I don't. You I don't. It before and I don't know how it would have gotten there. And if a if a pebble jumps up and hits your windshield, yeah, you can't do anything about that. That's like happened. that's not something that I did wrong. I was just behind like some garbage truck, or maybe the other one of the other women on my tour, the other comics was behind the garbage truck and got nicked in the windshield. But like they get like the crazy thing is since it's a rental car, I can't be like, I'll get the window glass replaced on my own. No, they can just be like, that costs seven hundred dollars. And I'd be like, well, if I were getting it replaced on my own, it'd be like one twenty five. And they'd be like, "Mm, well, you initialed here. So it's seven hundred or eight hundred or a thousand or you owe us a new car. Like it's just it's just what are the what are the limits on the reasonable business practices and the fees associated with something like renting a car? They can just charge you like blue for any kind of thing that's an aberration against their contract, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, and it's terrifying because it seems like you have no recourse. It seems like in order to do any kind of business, whether it's to have a bank account, to rent a car, get an airplane flight, you have to like abdicate your rights. You have to sign away your rights to have any kind of reasonable expectations just to get it done. And they look at you like you're the scum of the earth. Right. How could you do this to our precious, precious car? Yeah. And like, like, it's not something that is like, it's literally not a reckless thing. Like it's, it's, there's a pebble that hit the windshield. You cannot do anything about that. It could have happened in their parking lot. It's an act of a very tiny God. Yeah. <laughs> a very tiny, <laughs> feudal, but effective God. God. Yeah. Um, but getting back on course, I mean, you've, you've, you've touched on this a little bit. So I guess I'm curious as to what are some of the things that you've been instituting in your life to get yourself some satisfaction? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that having a sense of myself as a creative person and therefore being like, yeah, sometimes I'm going to be productive in spurts creatively. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm going to be like, la, 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 la. I'm an artist. La, la, la. Mm -hmm. Like that's allowed. I allow myself to have periods of, you know, where I'm not writing a lot of new jokes, for example, and I don't panic. I don't feel like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm lax. I'm lazy. I've stopped labeling myself as lazy. 
I've stopped being um, because I've decided that I don't agree with the American value that what we're meant to do is work. You know, I, I do the work that I need to do to live. I, you know, I cook my food or I pr- purchase my food. I, I get out of bed in the morning. I take a shower. Like I do all that stuff. But you and you also have uh, a really good family system. Like it sounds like you have a lot of good. You have good friends. I do, You're, and I have I have a really great marriage. Yeah, you have a good marriage. So it's like these are beautiful things that you have that a lot of people do not. I know, and I feel so lucky. And I I think you know gratitude in that sense is and being aware of what I do have instead of what I don't have is a big part of it. But just in in my efforts to be less hard on myself. Mm-hmm. I've managed to find a lot more satisfaction and just, just by, just by kind of appreciating what I do have and appreciating. And also I think a big part of the path to my own satisfaction is pursuing creative hobbies that are not associated with my creative career. Ooh, that's, that, that's been something I've been trying to institute. Yeah. Like doing things that have nothing to do with comedy, like, uh, gardening or, I want to take a woodworking class. Yeah. Or I tried to start a book club, which I still need to return the uh, – I had these two friends that are – there were friends of my friend that got married, and I saw them at something when they were moving back to Boston, and I saw these two friends there. And they, one's a school teacher and one's an animator. Cool. So I'm like, why don't we start a book club? Yeah. Because we're from different walks of life. How about all of us pick two people and we'll read a fucking book of fiction? Yeah. And the school teacher's like, can we read Twilight? I'm like, I guess. I'm like, I only read nonfiction. <laughs> yeah. You know? And then the animator's just like, she reads like super deep, like the hottest novels that are out, like the indie novels. Oh, cool. You know, where it's just kind of like, these aren't the main, it's not Twilight, but she reads like the things that like, oh, the Salman Rushdie uh, put out a manuscript that no one has seen that I downloaded. Can we read that? I'm like, yeah, we can read that shit. Right, right, right. Um. So I'm like, let's all do that. And like, because they're from different walks of life, because we don't have the same ideas, I'm like, that would be incredibly valuable. Yeah. I can't be around people that agree with fucking everything I have to say all the damn time. It's so hard for me to be around people who don't have the same worldview as me. And that's something that I'm trying to stretch out away from because I coddle myself. I surround myself by people who see the world exactly the same way that I do. And it's hard because you you need that extra. You need to be able, we, okay, I'll speak for myself. I have found that I need to be able to communicate with people that aren't me <laughs> that like that don't have my worldview that don't have because how else am I supposed to become more educated right you know how else am I supposed to uh gain more insight because and especially when I'm looking at the last fucking decade or over that yeah last 12 years of the united 13 years of the united states so much polarization yeah. Just the most polarized we've ever been for a good hundred years. Right. And just people are just really far to the left, really far to the right, not a lot of people in the center. And I'm like, I need to I need to cross the aisle, right? Yeah. In my everyday life. Let me talk to someone that doesn't have the same fucking so that way we can just stop yelling at each other. I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna hear what you have to say. And hopefully I can change your mind in a delicate way that will stick with you instead of yelling at you. Vice versa, true. Maybe you'll right. make me see a subject in the way I did not think of. Yeah, and I think that that willingness and openness to be changed is so counterintuitive, especially in the whole millennial identity side of it, 
where it's like I've been branding myself since I was ten. Dude, like I've got to be. They picked that identity so early. You know, and I think that I think that I had a similar thing of just like I I felt disloyal to my former self by changing and evolving, and and you have to have a, a sense that life is an informing process. It's an unfolding. And if you're will, if you're if you want to change people's minds, but you're unwilling to change your own mind, you're going to be utterly ineffective. You know, you have to you have to be open to their perspective, and you have to be open to the idea that there are ways of thinking that you haven't seen or um, considered that might be valid. And I I think that having that openness is an important component of feeling more relaxed in the world because you don't have to be perfect, you don't have to be right. Not having to be right is pretty great. Ooh, man. Uh, I've been using this answer to questions lately that it's just made me feel so much better. What's that? I don't know. Woo! I've heard of it. The permission to fucking just say, you know what? I don't – I do not know. I say I don't know a lot, and I wish, I wish more people would, especially when it's like you say a factoid like, oh, well, those birds breed here. And then someone says, oh, well, what do they do in the winter? I don't know. If you say, if you, you feel like, oh, shit, I put myself out there as an expert, I better come up with some <laughs> bullshit. But you're not an expert. You're just a person that happened to know that thing about that bird. Right. And then you turn around and say, I don't know. It's, it's, it's great. It's but, humble. And then also, I feel like uh, it, it makes you less indignant. Sure. Like saying, I don't know. is just like, you know, I don't know. And then I go look that shit up. So I will know. Right. I'm more likely to do that than if I try to like defend myself in the moment, then it becomes more about emotions than me actually saying anything. Then suddenly I'm just defensive for no fucking reason and I'm less likely to learn. And I think I think that uh, an early thing about this whole perspective shift of just like not trying to be perfect is like saying I'm sorry and meaning it and having I'm sorry mean I said something that was wrong or or something that I I didn't mean or you to- or you hurt or I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I bumped into you. I'm sorry. I, it's not an admission of I tried to hurt you and I'm sorry that I did that. It's it's uh, I didn't try to hurt you, but something that I did resulted in you feeling pain or negativity. And I'm sorry. And that being because you're imperfect, because you're a human and you make mistakes and you're fallible and that that's fine. That you're allowed to say, like, um, if you if you way over speak in a conversation, if you if you're having an argument with somebody and you say you always make me unhappy, and somebody says, "Wow, that's a little bit intense," and you're like, "You're right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry. I don't mean that." Like th- that, it gives you it gives you the power to express yourself and not have to be perfect. True, that. I think satisfaction is about allowing yourself to be the subject of your own life instead of the object. Ooh, say that one more time. I think satisfaction is about learning to be the subject of your own life instead of the object. How about one more once? (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. I hope you guys could get some satisfaction from that podcast. I don't know why I can't just resist making those horrible jokes. I always think that bad jokes are funny, but people just think I'm making bad jokes, and that's as good as I can do. It's like, bitch, I know how to make a joke, okay? I know what I'm doing. I just think it's funny when I think the idea 
of somebody thinking a bad joke is amazing is really funny. The person who is celebrating themselves, celebrating their ideas, and celebrating just existence because of some horrible joke they made that they think is really great. They're, they're behind it. And they're just like, huh? Right? And no one knows what the fuck they're talking about. That's funny to me for some reason. That's funnier to me than the joke itself is the presentation of the joke. Okay, that's a tangent. Won't you call sign? Oh, geez. Um, you guys, check out allthingscomedy.com uh, and all the other All Things Comedy podcasts, which were well represented at PodFest this weekend. Uh, comedy film nerds, Jake This of Jake Johansson. My podcast, uh, The Dork Forest. A couple other podcasts that uh, I like on All Things Comedy and Network. Uh, Minivan Men, uh, Bill Burr's Monday Morning Podcast, uh, The Skeptic Tank, uh, The Champs, uh, you know, lots of good stuff up there. Uh, a couple other podcasts that were over at Podcast Fest, Doug Loves Movies, um, Girl on Guy, Aisha Tyler's podcast, uh, just a lot of good stuff, a lot, a lot of good stuff. So, uh, 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 uh. I um, hope you guys check out more of all those podcasts and check out allthingscomedy.com. Uh, and uh, me, myself, and I am going to New York. I will be at Comic-Con October 10th. Uh, I will be performing at Comic-Con as part of the Comedy Mutant show. It's going to be me, Mike Kaplan, Mike Drucker, Brian Posehn, and Janine Garofalo. Uh, and then on October 14th, I am doing an appearance on my friend, Kamal Bell's show Totally Biased on FXX um, that has people on the writing staff such as Eliza Skinner and Guy Branham and Hari Kondabolu uh, all past guests and I will record podcasts with them uh, when I am in New York and um, then I come back on October 17th and 18th I am at the Madhouse Comedy Club in San Diego come on out those are going to be great shows the club's pretty damn good I like it a lot actually I like the guys who run it a lot too uh, and then uh, after that October 24th 25th and 26th I will be at the Atlanta Improv which I believe is in Buckhead um, and all around those Atlanta dates I have shows all over the south check out com for the full schedule because um, I'm going to be in like Columbia South Carolina and Greenville South Carolina and uh Nax, Naxville, Knoxville and Nashville, Tennessee and Huntsville, Alabama and uh, all, all the Vils. I'm going to be in a lot of Vils. Asheville, North Carolina. Those are the Vils. I'm going to be in I'm going to be in Asheville, Knoxville, Nashville, Huntsville, Greenville, all these Vils. Um, I'm, I'm singing on the top of music that I am not listening to right now. I'm, I'm laying that track under. My dulcet tones right now. That's right, baby. Oh, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep Shit. Next time, I'll make sure to do it to you in your soul holes. <laughs>